Well, good morning, and thanks for joining us today at New City Church. If we're going to uh, continue the theme of a blind first date, uh, goes well to my story to start out with here this morning. Uh, one day, a young man called his mom, really excited to announce to his mom that he had just met the woman of his dream. She was beautiful. She was amazing. Um, uh, she was just like the most amazing person I've ever seen in my life. And so as they're talking on the phone, his mom says to her, or his mom says to his son, well, why don't you send her some flowers and invite her to your apartment for a home-cooked meal? And so he's like, well, that's a great idea. I'll do that. And so uh, he plans the date on the calendar. It tells his mom, hey, I invited her over for the home-cooked meal. It's going to be amazing. And, and so the night of the date, his mom doesn't hear anything from her son. And so she waits till the day after and calls her son and asks him how things have gone or how things went. Uh, he says to his mom, he says, mom, the evening was a complete disaster. I mean, it was horrible. Like it could have not gone any worse than you could think. Uh, and his mom's like really confused. Like, how could this have gone so bad? And so she says, well, did she not come over? And he says, well, well he came over, but she refused to cook. <laughs> Now, in that story, you're like, yes, that's, I, I hope that that date went poorly because that is not at all what happens when someone invites you to their house for a home-cooked meal. And I share that story today as we continue our time in Genesis because here's the question we're looking at this morning, okay? Uh, what type of person does God partner with? What type of person does God partner with, right? In, in that introductory story, that man is a jerk. He should be dumped and uh, she should never see him again. She should not partner with him in any way. He doesn't understand uh, normal social relationships, right? Uh, so for us today, we ask ourselves, man, what does it look like for us to be in a position for God to use us? Uh, for us to be in a position for God to have a great plan for our life or to see him do amazing things, what type of person does God partner with? That's the question we're looking at this morning. And so uh, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 28? Um, if you don't have a Bible, there'll be a, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can turn to page 23 there. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. Uh, we have been in the book of Genesis for much of this year. And so uh, today uh, we're continuing the story of Isaac and Jacob. And so the beginning pages of scripture talk about who God is, what he has done. He covenants with Abraham. Uh, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then out of you, I'm going to bless the entire world. And then we read about Isaac. And today we read more about Jacob. If you were with us last time we were in Genesis, uh, Jacob has an older brother named Esau who he deceives twice. So he takes his birthright and then he deceives his dad into tricking his dad to give him the blessing of the firstborn. And so at the end of chapter 27, Isaac is going to run for his life. So his brother, or sorry, Jacob is going to leave and run for his life. His brother Esau said, I'm going to kill him, right? When our dad Isaac dies, which they think is going to be soon, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. And so Jacob's, Jacob and Isaac's mom, Rebecca, hears the, the plan. And so she tells Jacob that he needs to flee so that he does not die as well. And so chapter 28, starting in verse one, here's what it says. So Isaac, their dad, summoned Jacob, blessed him and commanded him. Do not marry a Canaanite girl. And we've talked about that. It's not because they're, they're in the promised land, the land of the people that they're in. Uh, Isaac does not want his son, who's the heir of the covenant of God, to adopt the practices of the people of Canaan. He wants him to go to their family land and marry a wife there. So he says, verse 2, Go at once to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Marry one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you become an assembly of peoples. 
Verse 4, may God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham, which is his grandfather, so that you may possess the land where you live as a foreigner, the land that God gave to Abraham. In other words, your offspring is going to possess and own this land that we currently live in. Verse 5, so Isaac sent Jacob to Padan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau, right? And so uh, just as Abraham insisted that Isaac marry someone outside the land, but marry someone where Abraham came from, now Isaac is doing the same for Jacob. Again, he doesn't want Jacob to assimilate into the culture and how they view people and how they view their gods. He wants him to understand who God really is. And so he doesn't want him to marry a Canaanite. And so he tells him to go back to the land that they came from and find a wife there. In fact, Jacob's marriage instructions are very similar to those given by Abraham to his servant to find a wife for Isaac. Now, Isaac is giving these same instructions to Jacob. This, of course, if you've been with us, is also in contrast to his brother Esau, who, as we saw last week, took not one but two wives from the Philistines or from the Canaanites. And so his brother Esau married two women from this land, and he does not want Jacob, who's going to be the heir of the covenantal promises of God, to do the same. Now, of course, the question that arises or the tension uh, is what happens if if Jacob leaves and doesn't come back, right? If he leaves and does not come back to the land, that could provide a problem with the, the, uh, the covenant and the, and the inheritance of the land. However, at this point, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, uh, have died, and, so they, and they are buried in this area, and so there's at least more of an ancestral tie to this land than when Isaac was just trying to find a wife. And so uh, I, uh, Jacob's going to go for two reasons. One, for survival. Uh, we're not sure. Isaac probably doesn't know that's the reason that his mom told him to leave. So, but he's leaving because he doesn't want to be killed by his brother. But he's also going to leave so that he can find a wife. And so uh, Isaac, his dad sends him away, blesses him again, says, you're going to be a great nation. And he sends him away. And then it says this in verse 6. Esau noticed that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him to Badan Aram to get a wife there. When he blessed him, Isaac commanded Jacob, do not marry a Canaanite girl. And Jacob listened to his father and mother and went to Padan Aram. Esau realized that his father Isaac disapproved of the Canaanite women. So Esau went to Ishmael and married, in addition to his other wives, Mahalahath, daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. She was the sister of Nabai Ioth. And so what, what's happening here? I know there's a lot of names, okay? Uh, here's what's happening. Uh, uh, Esau, again, realizes that his parents are not happy with his marriage. In fact, uh, his wives actually call consternation for Rebecca and Isaac. And so his, his proposal to fix the solution is to marry someone from within their family tree. The irony, again, as readers, especially if you've been with us, is that Ishmael was, the, uh, one, was Isaac's brother, but he was the one that was sent away. So he's not one that's going to be part of the covenantal promises of God. And so what, uh, Jacob, or what Esau does, he's like, well, I'm going to marry back into the family tree, but he marries someone who has already been excluded from the covenant. So even his fix doesn't even like fix the problem that he has created, right? The irony is that Esau ends up identifying with a line that has already been sent away. And so he's not fixing the problem at all. 
right? And so, so here's what happens. Verse 10, again, I'm going to read most of the story today, and then we're going to apply this at the end. Verse 10, it says this, Jacob left Beersheba, where they were living, and went toward Haran. So he's going back to his ancestral land. Verse 11, he reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. So as he's traveling, he, during one of their stops, he visits a place. Uh, by the way, this is about a 550-mile journey that he's on. So this is a, about a month, if they make good timing. It's a long journey to get where he is going. Uh, verse 11. So yeah, he took one of the stones, uh, or sorry, he reached a place, certain place, spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put there at his head, and lay down at that place. And he dreamed. A stairway was set up on the ground with its top reaching the sky. And God's angels were going up and down on it. It could be a stairwell or it could be a ladder, different ways to translate it. But he sees something where the angelic beings are going up and down from the heavens to earth. Verse 13, the Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Verse 15, look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. In other words, you're going to go on this journey, you're going to find a wife, and I'm going to bring you back here, and I'm going to bless you. Okay, so Jacob, again, he's on this 550-mile journey. It would take at least about a month, depending the size of your traveling party, and if you don't run into any two issues on your travels. Uh, and while on this journey, he has a dream that would actually make a lot of sense in the ancient worldview that's kind of confusing for us to read. And so basically, let me just explain what's happening here quickly. Um, what's happening in this dream is that there is a stairway or there is a ladder from the ground to the sky where deity or the deity's messengers uh, descend. If you were with us when we talked about the Tower of Babel, this is what the ancients would view as like a portal, that there are certain places on earth where the God or God or the gods in, in many of their worldviews would come and kind of travel between the heavens and the world. And so here, uh, God, he has this dream where God is there. He's standing behind this beside the stairway, and you have these angelic beatings coming and going. Uh, here, God covenants with Jacob. So this is Jacob's first encounter with God, just like God covenanted with Abraham and Isaac. Now God is continuing, continuing his covenant with Jacob. He says that your offspring are going to be uh, too numerous to count, and that somehow, some way through him, the entire world will one day be blessed because of your offspring. Because as followers of Jesus, we know who, who God is referring to here. God promises to bring him back to his father Isaac, and it's just worth noting if you look at the timeline and the age of where, these, where they are based on the surrounding chapters. Uh, Isaac here um, is 77 years old. Now, they do end up living a little bit longer than we do in the story. His father Abraham died at 175, but he's 77 when this happens. Uh, Abraham was 75 when he had first encounter with God, when God first called him. So they are about the same age. Now, here's what's happening in this dream. Uh, while this dream would 
have no doubt been a very, really big deal to Jacob. Its context, what's really interesting, is that it's the context of this dream would have been culturally understandable to him. Again, even if it is confusing to us. Again, so what you have is you have a stairway that's acting as a portal between the heavens and the world where divine beings come and go through. This is in line with what would be called a ziggurat structure. We talked about this with the Tower of Babel. It's a type of tower that they made in the Tower of Babel. Well, basically, you make this really big building with a big stairway up into the heavens, or, you know, it's about as tall as they could make it. And you would, have, you would assume that this is a, essentially, if we're going to put modern language on it, a portal. This is where the heavenly beings come and go. And so they would build these really big ziggurat towers, which is what the Tower of Babel probably was. And then next to these towers, they would build a temple. And so you would kind of create like a, here's where the heavenly beings come and go, and they're going to come to the temple to accept our sacrifices. And so uh, what was happening here, in other words, is that Jacob's dream is thoroughly embedded in the imagery of a worldview where gods interact with humans in this way, where there's these portals between heaven and earth where the gods come down and interact with people and their offerings. In other words, uh, God meets Jacob in a way that he would expect any God to do in his culture with a promise that he will bring him back to possess the land. I just want to say this. This is where, you know, certainly modern critics will talk about how the Bible is, is weird and like a God with a stairway. Like we know God doesn't operate like that. Like this idea that there's portals between heaven and earth and different parts of the world. Uh, here's what I would say. God meets us consistently throughout scripture in ways that we could understand. I would submit to you, if this story were happening today, and God were to, you know, he was coveting with somebody, let's say Jesus hadn't come yet, whatever, and somebody had a dream, I think their dream would look a lot different. It would look similar, it would look in a way that you and I might understand. And so while we might think this is weird, like why would God play into a cultural understanding? Maybe you might say a wrong cultural understanding of how God interacts with human beings. Well, I think again, God always first and foremost starts where we are. And I would submit again, this is what God is doing with Jacob. He's meeting Jacob in a way that Jacob would understand. Oh, no, no, there's something different going on here that God himself is revealing himself to me. And so, again, clearly this is what Jacob thinks is happening because this is what happens next in verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. I didn't know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. In other words, to him, he's like, I didn't know it when I was like walking through here, but this is the portal between heaven and earth. And so after his dream, again, he says, again, if we were to put modern language on it, this is like a portal place. This is a place where God comes to humanity. Also, again, for the uh, biblical astute reader, this is giving us imagery of the Garden of Eden where heaven and earth overlapped and God was present. That's what this is, right? It's an idea of God was here and he met me here. And so Jacob is amazed. Again, he had no idea that this place was so special. And so Jacob does what the people of his time period would have done and would have thought. Uh, he says, this is a portal. And so therefore I'm going to make a place of worship to God. Verse 18, he says this, early in the morning, Jacob took this stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker or some translations say a pillar. He poured oil on top of it, and he named the place Bethel, or Bethel, as we typically say it, though previously the city was named Luz. 
In other words, he has this dream. He realized God has met him here. There's something significant about this place. And so he takes a pillar or a marker and he consecrates it as holy. He names this place Bethel, which means house of God. Uh, This happened near the city of Luz. So the ancient readers would have a geographical understanding of where this was taking place. Uh, It was called uh, that by, it was called Luz by the Canaanites until the Israelites eventually took over the area and renamed the city Bethel. Now, I also just want to mention this to us. I know I'm explaining a lot of stuff here, but it's just helpful for us to know. Um, Jacob erects a marker or a pillar. It's what it tells us here in Genesis 28. I think it's significant that Jacob does not erect or does not build an altar. And here, here, here's why. Um, it's potentially significant. So later in Deuteronomy chapter 19, when the Israelites are given the commands of God and how to worship him, uh, some of the rules and the commands that they are given are given so that the people, the surrounding nations, would see the Israelites as different. And how they, celebrate, or how they worship their God is different than how the surrounding nations worshiped their gods. And so in Deuteronomy 16, the Israelites are told not to sell up, set up pillars, which was a common practice in the ancient world, but they are to celebrate these, or they are to erect these altars that are supposed to look different to signify the God that we are worshiping is wholly different than the gods of the people that they are worshiping. Um, In fact, in Genesis 35, so after a few chapters, we'll get this into a couple of weeks, when Jacob learns a lot more about who God is, when he's traveling back to the land that he came, or back to his father Isaac, back to that land, he actually arrives back at this spot, and and then he changes the pillar into an altar. I think it's trying to show us, as we'll see, that he is growing in his understanding of who God is. And so he does the right thing and says, I'm going to worship you differently than people would have worshipped their gods. Now, I I say all that to say, I'm not necessarily saying that Jacob did something sinful or wrong by uh, erecting a pillar or building a pillar at this point. Uh, He's doing what is the common cultural practice at his time. Um, I just think that that Jacob, again, he's not fully understanding uh, who God is, and he's he's interacting with the God of the Scriptures, the Yahweh, the same way that you would interact with any other gods of that time. And part of the reason I would say that is because of how Jacob then responds to God after this dream. says this, verse 20, the last couple of verses of this chapter. It says this, Then Jacob made a vow, If God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I am making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. In other words, if I do all this stuff, I, I find a wife, everything goes well for me, I come back home, God, God gives me safe passage, everything works out. If that happens, then he will be my God. 22, this stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all that you give me. Now, this, is, this might strike you as weird of how he responds to God, and it should. So again, remember the context of what is happening. Originally, Jacob goes on this journey for survival and to find a wife to have children with and to continue the covenantal blessing. And now this, this journey that was just practical uh, also starts to gain a theological uh, uh, a meaning as well. And again, remember, the two stories we have of Jacob we saw previously are him deceiving his brother out of the birthright and then him deceiving his father to get the blessing. 
And now, and so he, he manipulates, he deceives. Jacob is a play on words that means deceiver in the ancient world. And then now he responds to God, revealing himself to him differently than Abraham responded when God first revealed himself to Abraham. Again, God chose Abraham out of grace and Isaac and Jacob. And then he placed conditions on Abraham. Abraham he says, if you do this, if you follow me, if you trust me, I will do all these things for you. And so follow me, trust me, and the covenantal promises will be realized. In fact, they didn't even test Abraham, if you remember, a few weeks ago by almost sacrificing his son Isaac. Abraham passed the test. He says, God, I'm going to follow you for who you are, not just for what I think I might be able to get from you. But yet what Jacob does is different. Jacob, in effect, is inversing this, and he's the one putting conditions on God so that God can be the beneficiary of, his, of the promises Jacob offers. In other words, in Jacob's response to God and his vow to God here, he says, God, if you do this, if you do this, then here is what I will do for you. If you do what you say, then I will make you my God. Then I and my descendants will worship you. Right? And again, on top of all of this kind of an interesting way to respond to God, as it's like you as of making yourself like the one that's the big person in this agreement. Again, remember, Jacob here is the one in a desperate and vulnerable situation. He is in like no position of strength. He's fleeing for his life. He, life. He's trying to find someone to marry. And yet God, uh, without Jacob pleading or asking, God is the one who meets him in his distress. And in response to all these amazing things that God promises him, he says he will only walk with God if God first provides value to him. That's Jacob's response. And here's the deal. I think if we are honest and we read this story, here's what we would say that we are like Jacob, right? Just like Jacob uh, was asking God to prove himself first, um, if we're honest, we can do the same exact things in our lives. Again, hear me. I'm not trying here to point Jacob as some evil monster. Rather, I think Jacob is doing what is natural to all of us, right? Here's what I want. Here's what I need. And God, if you follow through, then I will follow you. Right? If God, if you prove yourself worthy to me, then I will trust you. Right? And I know these are like small examples, but we do the same thing. God, if I get a, give me, give me an A on this test. If I get an A on this test, then I'll do X, Y, and Z. Uh, God, let her or him like go out with me on this date and let it be amazing. Or God, let me get this house or this job. God, if I get this thing that I desire, if you provide it for me, then... I will be a better person, or we say, or, or then I'll go to church more, or then I'll be more generous. But God, you do it first. If you do it, what, if you do what I want you to do, then I'll follow you. And when we do that, we are no different than Jacob. We want God to prove himself. And if and when God proves himself the way we are satisfied with, then we'll trust him. In some ways, it kind of reminds me, reminds me if you haven't seen the show, you're probably familiar with the show um, Undercover Boss. When you have someone who's like in charge of like a Fortune 500 company, like a CEO level, and he comes, like let's say, I'm not, I'm not saying this is an episode, but let's say like the CEO of Chipotle, right? Uh, and so there's an episode of like, he becomes like a new hire at one of the Chipotle restaurants and he has to get trained. And uh, what's fascinating about that show is that like these people have no idea that like the big boss man or the big boss lady is like right in front of them. And so some people do really well, like they're kind to the customers, they train well, and some people do terrible, like they're, they're horrible to the customers. 
customers. They don't care. They, they take breaks and shortcuts. They're terrible at training new employees. And, and they have no idea that the person that they are interacting with is actually the one who's the boss, who's actually the one who is in charge. And so again, just like us, just like us go our own way, even with maybe good intentions or maybe not necessarily uh, uh, bad desires, we want God to prove himself to us. And if he does that, then we will follow him. That is what Jacob is doing. And so again, I would just say to us this morning, even how God meets Jacob in a dream that would have been thoroughly understood in an ancient context, here's what we need to understand. That God does not wait until you arrive at spiritual maturity before inviting you in. Right? Knowing that, knowing that we are like Jacob, uh, knowing that, 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 that we are, do not have everything figured out all the time, and sometimes, again, we think, well, God will bless me if I do X, Y, and Z, if I become a good person, if I read my Bible, uh, if I understand these things. What we see over and over again in scriptures, even what we've seen already with Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, that he is meeting people right where they are where they haven't earned it, they haven't proved themselves. Jacob not only has not proved himself, he's done the exact opposite of that, right? He has, if anything, disqualified himself with how he has acted and treated his own family, right? Yet, but these are the types of people that God invites in. Again, so often we think, God, I don't deserve God's love or his forgiveness or his grace. We think we have to be like maybe some spiritual giant or someone you really expect. And if you can live and behave like that person that you respect, uh, then God will love you and forgive you. Yet for every single one of us, no matter how amazing you might think you are or how amazing you might think someone else is, even then fall woefully short of the goodness and the perfection of God. Every single one of us, God meets us, not when we figure things out, but right where we have no idea who we are or where we are going. These are the types of people that God partners with. These are the types of people that God invites in. Not people who have it all figured out, but people out of his grace and his mercy, he meets them where they are. Now, what's also interesting about this story is that this story, again, as I mentioned a couple of times, is, is supposed to bring to mind the Tower of Babel. So many times in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, you see stories and themes of stories repeated again and sometimes flipped on their inverse. And this story is the Tower of Babel in inverse. So, so here's what I mean by that. In the Tower of Babel, if you remember, it was human beings trying to create something that they thought, at least, or would give them access to the gods. They try to build this massive temple to try to get God's favor to come down so they could offer sacrifices and they can get God or the gods in their eyes to do whatever they wanted the gods to do, to try to manipulate blessings out of them. And so what God does is he scatters them in large part because they think God can be manipulated and controlled like human beings, that he's a human that we can kind of get things from him. So he scatters them to show them this is not who I am and this is not how I operate. And so here in the dream that, that God re reveals himself to Jacob in, God is the one who presents or builds a stairway, right? It is not humanity. And in this dream, it is not humans that are going up to the gods, but it's God's angels that are coming down to humanity. And then at the end of the dream, God does not disperse people like he did at the Tower of Babel, but in Instead, in verse 14, God promises to unite and bless the world through Jacob. This is the inverse of Babel, that once you actually understand who I am and what I am doing and what Jesus is going to come to do, once you understand that, then you can go out and bless the world. In other words, what this story shows us is that at Babel, it was humanity's effort, but at Bethel, it was God's. 
At Babel, it was humanity trying to strive and work hard and get God to do what they wanted the gods to do. But in Bethel, it rightly shows us it is not our effort that gets anything from God, but it is his grace and his mercy, right? God is the one who comes down. God is the one who reveals his power on his own out of grace. Jacob didn't even ask for it. Right? Again, we're talking this morning about who God partners with. God partners with people like us. Like it's the people that are broken, that don't have everything all together. It's not about our efforts. It is about his and what he has done and what he offers. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus, in a way that it's easy to miss, but Jesus actually references this story. In John chapter 1, Jesus is beginning to call some of his disciples. And he calls uh, Philip as one of the disciples he's calling. And then Philip basically goes, tells his friend Nathaniel about this Jesus guy who, who's like this, this amazing thing. He's going to be a follower of Jesus. And so Nathaniel wants to come and meet Jesus. And so Nathaniel comes and meets Jesus. Uh, basically, long story short, Jesus like tells Nathaniel things about himself that Nathaniel didn't even know, that didn't even tell Jesus. Like the only way that Jesus could have known this like, is like supernaturally. Like there's just something different about this guy. Like he knows everything about me and I've never met him before. And so in response... And Nathaniel is really impressed with Jesus. And so he says this in, cha- in chapter 1, verse 49 of John. It says, Rabbi, Nathaniel replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus rep- responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly I tell you. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What he's telling Nathan, Nathaniel is that if you follow and trust me, what you will eventually one day see is that just like the story of Jacob, it's the only story in the Old Testament where you have angels ascending and descending on a tower or a stairway. Uh, just like you saw that, that's what you're going to see. And here's what you're going to find out. That these angels, you want to know who they're worshiping? You want to know who they're serving? They're serving me. You're going to see this in all its totality as the divine beings, as these angelic beings are coming to serve me. Uh, This is why in John chapter 10, another well-known passage of Jesus, he says this in verses 7 through 10. Jesus said again, he's explaining to his disciples and his people who he is. He says this in verse 7, I truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and come in and out and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. What Jesus is saying is, I am the gates. I am the stairway. I am the portal. If you want access to God, it comes through me. In other words, what he's saying to Nathaniel, what he's saying to his disciples is that Jesus, that he is the one who connects us to God. It is not your effort. It is not your trying really hard. It's not, God, if you do this, I promise to be a good person. Or, God, I promise to do X, Y, and Z. And if I'm good enough, will you please give me what I am wanting? Jesus connects us to God. Now, of course, Jesus is God. He's, the God. He's God in flesh incarnate. He's the one, in other words, who connects us to himself. It is him and what he has done and what he has offered. And ultimately, his grace, his perfect life, his death, his substitutionary sacrifice for us that invites us into a relationship with God. Jesus is the one who does it, not us, not us. And so again, the question for us this morning, what type of person does God partner with? Well, here's what this story shows us, that God only and ever partners with broken people. That's who God partners with. 
He doesn't partner with the all-stars, the people who think they have it all together, the people who are morally amazing and make a lot of money or are really attractive or any. God partners with people that, that do not deserve it. The only people that God ever partners is, is with people who do not have it all figured out, who have not lived up to the standard of God, yet he loves us anyway. In other words, God only and ever partners with people just like you. That's who God partners with. Right? In other words, uh, getting to God starts first and foremost with God coming down and getting us. Again, the good news of the gospel, what the, the Genesis story, Genesis 28 is showing us is that God is the one who intervenes. Just like God graciously revealed himself to Jacob, God graciously reveals himself to us. And hear me, how we live matters. Our behavior matters. Honoring God is a good thing, but we do not get the grace and mercy of God out of, out of obedience. We get the grace and mercy of God because of his love for us. And then we follow and honor him in response. And so, so hear me, man, if you're with us this morning, maybe you're watching online and you're not sure about this Jesus thing and you're thinking like, yeah, this whole grace, I've heard it before, love, but like, man, you don't know my story. And I, one of my favorite things is like, listen, I don't know your story, but here's what I do know. Who are you and who am I to argue with God? If God says, and if he demonstrates that he be, reveals himself and partners with broken people, it's not about what you think, it's a matter, it's what he says. And he says on the cross, God, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing, that he has lived and he's bled and he's given his life as a sacrifice so that any and every broken person who wants redemption and hope can find it in him. And you find it not by being a better person, but by trusting his grace and his mercy. And listen, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning and you, man, you just feel like I've blown it lately, like I've been, I've sinned, like I haven't lived up, God's promise to you is no different than it was the first time that you met him. He still loves you where you are. He still wants to invite you in and he still walks with you. God only partners with broken people. God only partners with people just like you. And that's the good news of the gospel.